So just because something happened to you doesn't mean you have PTSD. And I guess this is my soapbox. Like, I'm really kind of tired of the word PTSD being thrown around. So, oh, I have PTSD from that traffic stop, you know, 15 years ago. Dear Sigmund. I'm Dr. J.P. Shand, and I'm a board-certified psychiatrist uh, in uh, general psychiatry and forensic psychiatry. What's forensic psychiatry? Oh, man, we've been down that rabbit hole already. <laughs> I love it. I forget. Okay. Well, I'm Shannon Miller, um, licensed clinical social worker and owner of Apricity Behavioral Health, which is an online-only um, therapy practice specializing in the mental health needs of American expatriates that are currently living overseas. And this is our podcast. Yeah, we're here for people that want to um, ask a psychiatrist or therapist a question, but don't really want a a relationship with them. But if you need a relationship with one, you should seek one. Because this is only for entertainment and uh, educational purposes only. Dear Sigmund, what are some ways to combat PTSD from sexually and emotionally abusive relationships? And how can I take steps to trust my new partner? Hmm. This is a, oh man, this is a probably a fairly complicated question and answer, but PTSD, just to clarify, post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of people think it's just like a combat thing. Um, Shannon, you work specifically with expats, probably a lot in the military. Uh, but, uh, you know, in, in our field, uh, yours and mine, PTSD happens in all sorts of realms. Um Natural disasters yeah. can be, a, and it's also the difference between big T trauma and little T trauma, right? So like the chronic ongoing things is what we call little T trauma. Big T trauma is the incident, like it is something ingrained in your memory. And I think it's also important to point out that PTSD is born out of moment of terror that you cannot wrap your mind around. And then we have something called moral injury which is where you are confronted with a situation that causes you to question your morals, right? So the Mm -hmm. symptoms are going to be the same, but PTSD is born out of terror, a moment when you are just terrified, usually for your own life or somebody else's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people witness, I was just speaking to somebody today actually, witness somebody die in front of them. And that Mm -hmm. brings up this idea of your own mortality and your own fear and your own safety. And then you have re-experiencing of the symptoms. You have avoidance of things that remind you of the triggers. um, And re-experiencing is things like flashbacks. Everyone knows that terminology. But uh, it's a very specific thing that can happen. Uh, Dreams, nightmares, um, even seeing things on television that you avoid you want to not watch a tv show that reminds you of this episode so you'll turn the tv show off or um uh intrusive thoughts the memories just pop up when they're not supposed to these are all symptoms thrill seeking is another big one too it's that craving that adrenaline rush show me i'm alive kind of thing yeah impulsive i in in the dsm i think we call it impulsive behavior yeah um this kind of throw caution to the wind Mm-hmm. Uh, irritability, anger outbursts, mm-hmm. uh, high anxiety, hypervigilance. These are all symptoms of PTSD. Right. But they can also be symptoms of other things, too. So just because something happened to you doesn't mean you have PTSD. And I guess this is my soapbox. Like, I'm really kind of tired of the word PTSD being thrown around. So, oh, I have PTSD from that traffic stop, you know, 15 years ago. No, 
chances are you probably don't unless something legitimately happened to you during that traffic stop, mm. right? We can just say like, oh, that was a moment in time, but PTSD has very specific criteria. And then we also get into complex PTSD when, mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have the DSM memorized the same way you do, but like <laughs> complex is when it goes on longer and longer and longer. Yes. Yeah. And, and sometimes actually. Right, like it doesn't resolve. Correct. Correct. Okay. And it's acute trauma up to six months after the event occurred. And then after that is when it goes into PTSD. Right. Uh, acute stress reaction. Right. So it's normal to have a that. reaction like something fucked up happened in your life and you're going to react to it doesn't mean you have PTSD. Right. It, there's got to be some time in there where we expect you to naturally just sort of metabolize the situation. Right. And that's not what happens for you. Totally. It's right? a grace period. Kind of, it's normal to feel a certain way after a seriously traumatic event happens. Right. But then if it lingers and it prolongs and now it's causing distress in your life and it's causing behavioral changes and, you know, issues and relationships and functioning and occupational, now it's, now it's a diagnosable illness and, and it's very treatable. Very treatable and often missed and often uh, misdiagnosed as other things, depression or just generalized anxiety um, when people aren't really identifying a certain moment in time that may have really led up to a lot of this. Yeah. And then there's going to be in the next year or two MDMA treated PTSD. <laughs> yeah, you I have been interested wait. in this. I am. I'm, I'm all over it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it will be very cool. Um, I was doing a little bit of research. Shannon sent me some information on MDMA. MDMA is a... Uh, it's ecstasy. It's yeah, the party drug. Yeah, it's a drug. breakdown for, yeah. So actually Molly would specifically be, because ecstasy I think is a combination of other drugs within uh, Molly, MDMA. MDMA wow. is like pure MDMA. So we're getting the good shit. <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's the pure. <laughs> nice. Uh, so what was the question? Yes. We'll call it training. To... We'll call it professional development. <laughs> yeah. So right. what was the question? <laughs> so how does this person move through the PTSD from sexual and emotional trauma to go on to have functional relationships afterwards? And I would say, you know, getting yourself some trauma-focused mm-hmm. CBT, which is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Um where you kind of look at the narrative of what the trauma is and we look at these automatic thoughts that are coming up with it and the associations and we sort of pick that apart and rework it that we get different associations. Mm-hmm. There's also EMDR, which is what eye, move it, eye movement... Desensitization. Rapid... Pro- I don't know, whatever it is. <laughs> Basically, your eyes move all around. It sounds like it doesn't work. It is amazing. It does. It works. I've had a lot of clients that have done that with therapists. Um, Really amazing stuff. Also, uh, eye movement, what? Eye movement, desensitization. We're going to have to Google it uh, because I can't remember what the R is for. Rapid. REM. Well, actually, so so you're focused on (laughs) it. That was funny. No, you're focused on your trauma while you're making certain movements with your eyes. And what it's doing is it's kind of uh, distracting you from – God, somebody's going to write in and be like, that's not what it is. But it's supposed to distract you from the memory and linking the emotional response with the memory of the event. Right, and it's going to allow – I think. I'm not certified in it. But I think what it does is it allows the – Reprocessing. 
It's called yes. eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Right. So that reprocessing is basically the information of the trauma moves from one part of your brain to another. Oh, that's that's a great update that we yeah, just got. Sorry. What does it say? Nest. There's a person in your driveway. Their camera has spotted somebody. Ah. Oh, the camera dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my 6 p.m. alarm. Um, and then in, and in, in terms of the medications, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, are the best treatment for um, PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, so those medications that fall in the category of um, SSRIs are Lexapro, Celexa, Zoloft, um, Prozac, the common ones. But in terms of like the actual nuts and bolts of the relationship, like you're in a new relationship, talk to your partner. Mm -hmm. Tell them like, look, this is what happened to me before. These are the things that make me feel safe. I need to leave the lights on. Um, I need to be in the lead. I need to feel like I'm in control or you know, we need to be in this location, not that location. You really need to communicate and say, these things just don't work for me. Can you help me and can you care for me in that way by, by meeting these needs? Mm -hmm. It's that communication thing. Also, um, safety planning. So have a plan in place for what do I do if I ever find myself in that situation again? Mm. Like set up trip wires for yourself that you will recognize that you can take a different course of action if you find yourself in the same situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And regaining some control. Right. You want to be proactive and say, that's not going to happen again. Right. And here's why. Mm -hmm. Right. And you do it in times when you're really calm and you can just sort of look around and, um, how do I want to say it? Like take in your environment and say, no, if this is happening, then I will do this. We don't want to like come up with the plan mm -hmm. in the moment. Like, oh my God, this is happening right now. That's too late. You want to say, oh my God, it's happening right now. This is what I said I would do. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you want to be able to put it into action. That's kind of what CBT is doing too, right? That cognitive retraining right. of right. Uh, thoughts and emotions and responses. Right. And so you're trying to reprogram that response, which currently is probably for this individual something negative. They don't want to be fear, uh, you know, anger, um, you know, feelings of powerlessness uh, and trying to regain the feelings that she wants to regain in these intimate moments that she's talking about. Right. The other thing, too, that's important is watch what media you consume. Hmm. You know, if. If there are things that knowingly just sort of bring it all back, avoid it. You don't have to subject yourself to these triggering things. That's part of the DSM criteria for PTSD is, is avoidance. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the avoidance of, uh, of things that cause, well, that remind you of previous trauma. So I'm endorsing a symptom. I'm wondering. I am. <laughs> it's one of probably the more easily recognizable ones, uh, but... I would say if it is traumatizing, don't do it. Wait, right? what's okay? I don't like to watch overly emotional stuff. What's my trauma? Uh, you tell me. I don't know. <laughs> like I have a hard time watching like really heavy stuff on Netflix unless it's about serial killers, and then I'm all in. That's like probably the heaviest. <laughs> no, I have a really hard time watching heavily emotional stuff, and I've just attributed it to I deal with heavy emotions all day. I need a break from that. Yeah. 
but it is something I notice within myself that I avoid certain things. Yeah. Yeah. Do, uh, do you no, do that? No, actually, I go all in on all that dark, heavy stuff. Are you a sociopath? It's possible. <laughs> Didn't you say last episode you were waiting for me to snap one day? Yeah, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. No, not yet. But, uh, but I do I do like it. It's a kind of a cathartic release for me, too, because sometimes it's kind of it's it's not a problem that I'm being asked to solve. It's something that I know is going to resolve on the TV, and or it's going to take care though. of itself, which is fine, too. And then there's a mystery, but still it's not something that I am asked to have the pressure on myself to solve this complex issue you know or, or very you know oh see i don't have that pressure social. to solve complex issues oh. i'm just the guide oh man no see i sit in that physician chair and i got all the nurses looking at me social workers everyone just waiting for me to cure people left and right which is, wave yeah, that magic wand totally. sprinkle that fairy dust i do my best mm-hmm. all right hopefully that answers the question so you just want to be really communicative with your partner and do your own work do therapy you know, which can be EMDR, trauma-focused CBT. You want to put a plan in place. Um, okay, if that, if I find myself in that situation again, how would I handle it? Mm-hmm. And be very clear with yourself of what the tripwires are. The tripwires should not be flexible. Well, it wasn't that bad. No, none of that shit. Like, I said, you know, I told myself that if he, you know, restrained my arms that was it i'm out of there mm-hmm. not like well i kind of sort of yeah, no but he was really into it so yeah, i didn't want to interrupt. feel bad yeah. you know no the tripwire is the tripwire and sometimes the really hard work can be in maintaining the boundary that you set mm-hmm. right so like it's nice to set the boundary but then when it gets challenged it's that follow through that really takes grit yeah so good answer good question thank you for that question that's a heavy one yeah All right, Jesse, hit us again. Dear Sigmund, what are the criteria for being diagnosed with BPD? And is it better to speak to a specialist in this category first or see a mental health therapist that could refer someone to a specialist if needed? Uh, Okay, well, first tell us what BPD is, which is borderline personality disorder. Yeah. And borderline personality disorder is a really... I think underdiagnosed and overly stigmatized uh, disorder. Underdiagnosed? Yeah. I, I really do. Because a lot of people come in and they say, oh, I've got bipolar disorder. And oh, I can go from one emotion to the next. And most of the time I'm fine. But then I get really angry or upset. And, um, you know, I, I dissociate and I cut myself. And I hurt, you know, myself and others around me. And I push people away before they can leave me. Um, Ooh, I push people away before they can leave me. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Borderline. Yeah. And it's really the fear of abandonment is one of the staples of it. Um, So chronic fears of abandonment. um, uh, I mean, I've got them memorized. They're easily findable on the Internet. But I think the way that I'm going to answer this is really what borderline comes down to for me is somebody who is or was in a relationship with somebody this is a family member or some kind of a you know a parent child or a sibling or some way that a relationship was really damaged around you so much so that you cannot trust your own safety and security so you came up with these very regressed defense mechanisms which do not serve you well at all it's really bad. Do not serve skills. you well in adulthood. However, they oh, got you fair. through childhood. They were exceptionally functional then, right? Yes. And 
could be. I think I think it's well I think it's important now to to explain that kids cannot tolerate the thought of mom's messed up she can't take care of me right because mom is the being that's meant to keep you alive and for a child to contemplate uh-oh mom might not be all there kind of thing means death the brain interprets that as death right because that is your sole caretaker so a kid will do these amazing mental gymnastics mm. to make themselves um responsible for mom's behaviors well if i just make my bed neater she won't lose it on me you know well the truth is something's going on with mom and it doesn't matter whether or not you're going to make your bed but that reality is too much for a kid to face. So that's why we say that they're egocentric. They make it about themselves. If I just mm -hmm. do this, then mommy will be okay, right? And we're getting now into that like disorganized attachment where the kid never knows what they're gonna get when they walk through the door. Is it nice mommy or is it mommy that's losing it, yeah. right? And so the kid's always gonna be on guard and there's never a place to relax. Very damaging. Right. So now we move into adulthood where we have this very egocentric thing. If I do this, then they're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's dysfunctional in adulthood. Yes. It worked very well in childhood, but now that trait's not translating into adulthood. Yeah. And very self injurious, literally self injurious in yes, many ways. Very much so. Um, so, borderline personality disorder clients typically have very unstable relationships. They have very unstable self-image and um, their affect, mm -hmm. like their mood is all over the place, yeah. sort of, or like how how we perceive them. So like if I'm looking at someone who's borderline, they could be fine one moment and like gone the next, like just in a whole nother. Upset, irate, irrational. Um, yeah. I mean, really, uh, emotional states can shift very quickly, which is why a lot of people believe, oh, I must have bipolar disorder because I can go from one person to the next. But bipolar disorder is very much... You know, I have this mood state for five plus days, you know, in a manic episode or two plus weeks in a depressive state. For the record, I wanted to call this podcast. Trust me, you're not bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I remember. Right. Everybody wants to be bipolar because that's sort of the thing that we think that we are yeah. familiar with. But. Oh, there's this idea, too. I'm just thinking, looking at this. The um, this idea of. Uh, alternating between these extremes of idealization and devaluation in people around you. I love you. <laughs> yes. I hate you. Get away from totally. me. Or you're the greatest person in the world. I just met this new friend. She's amazing. Um, she's everything I want her to be. And then she doesn't text me once. And I, you know, I hate her. I never want to see her again. She's the worst. Mm -hmm. That idea of like putting somebody on a pedestal and then knocking them all the way down. Um, it's, it's much easier to see that with poor coping skills, somebody being all good or all bad, than it is to see and understand all these shades of gray or all these nuances to human behavior and uh, the predictability of human behavior is so much less mm -hmm. if you don't just categorize them as one or the other. Mm -hmm. Borderline personality clients also are very impulsive. Mm -hmm. You know, they will spend, they will... Um, abuse substances, there will be reckless driving, binge eating, anonymous sex kind of things. Like there's this, there's a lot of um, instant gratification, dopamine hit kind of things. Yeah. That or they do be. as well. Or can be. Can yeah, be. right. Yeah. And then there's also the grand gestures of suicide. 
like, I'll kill myself if you leave me. Mm-hmm. Right? There and, can well, be that yeah. sort of stuff, too. And often, I mean, you've always made it sound dramatic, but often it's a feeling that, like, yeah, I'm going to kill will myself. Do, they leave will do me. it. I am going to do And you better know that if this happens, I am unable to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in borderline, a lot of people... Um, Self-injurious or self-mutilating behavior, such as cutting, the belief that um, well, there's a couple of different theories behind cutting and why people self-injure. Usually when I say cutting, it's usually like razor marks kind of in parallel lines across different surfaces of their body. Often it's a non-dominant arm or thighs or uh, abdomen. Um, I've heard of women cutting themselves under their breasts. Yeah, you can hide it. Mm-hmm. You can hide it. Mm-hmm. Um, you more of a pendulous breast actually to hide it better, but pendulous. Yeah. Oh, there's is that code for saggy. Well, yeah. I mean, there's shapes to breast, right? There's it, anatomical shapes to, you know, really? Yeah. 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 Besides like perky, saggy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's more. I mean, pretty much. I think that's the gist of, of, of the definition. Yeah. So we dressed it up with medical terms. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I learned something new. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me just ponder that. So, uh, and and then also, I mean, it's a place that a lot of people don't look too. So, you know, you know, around that area, more sensitive areas sometimes are are identified as areas when when people don't want them to be seen. Um, but there's this sometimes this idea that there is a mini crisis that you're solving, right? There's this like huge out of control world around you with all of these moving parts and all of these emotions and you can distract yourself from all of those crises that feel so far out of your control to create a a much smaller experience through pain or this idea of like, well, I'm gonna cut myself and it hurts and it brings me right into this moment. I need to feel something that really is tangible and real as opposed to all these ethereal, nebulous, Mm -hmm. emotional pains. So I used to be really skeptical of the whole cutting thing, saying like, oh, it's a teen phase, everyone's Mm. doing it kind of thing and they developed inertia. But didn't you explain to me that we see it across species? And therefore, it it is legit. It's not just a, you know, this is what we're doing in 2020 kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't remember what that conversation was. It might have been about trichotillomania, like hair pulling. Yeah. You told me about birds plucking out their own feathers when stressed. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so, you so are can, you recanting now or? No, I'm okay. just thinking that there are these species that will, that will do these self injurious behaviors. When stressed. In, yeah. In, in kind of stressful situations. Do adults cut or is it strictly like an adolescent thing? Oh, no. So to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, you need to be over the age of 18. And self mutilation is one of the areas. And this is kind of one of the theories that we learn in residency. It's kind of like we don't diagnose it younger than that because everybody's emotions are so unstable during teen years and during development that there's not really enough time to build a pattern of this behavior. Um, but However, there's yeah. a growing camp that says, oh, yes, we can diagnose this before they're 18. Yeah, and I think people want to be able to identify it as early as possible, right. which is probably one of the best ways to nip it in the bud. You know, for, Can you nip it in the bud? Not Well, I mean, therapy works really, really well. DBT, DBT, dialectical Dialectical behavior therapy, which was developed by Marsha Linehan, which Mm -hmm. is like the goddess of all things BPD. Yeah. Seriously, check her out. Watch her YouTube videos. She's amazing. Oh, she's on YouTube? 
Cool. She's everywhere. <laughs> She's everywhere. So often I will tell my patients, you know, when they have this, because otherwise it's, well, I've got bipolar disorder, I must have schizophrenia. You know, the interesting thing about borderline personality is it was originally named such because it was sitting right on the borderline between psychosis and neurosis. What's neurosis? That's kind of the idea of these eccentric behaviors. Like I'm really neurotic about this one thing. So it's an antiquated verbiage in medicine now, but it used to be this kind of catch-all phrase of, of a neurotic uh, behavior or thought process or kind of, um, you know, I'm hyper-focused on something. You know, it could be anxiety or, uh, you know, abandonment or okay. something that, okay. you know, I'm neurotic about. And then psychosis is obviously derealization, hallucinations, depersonalization, these kinds of things. Um, and so that's why it was originally named, because it kind of rode this borderline. You kind of saw some people who were in the more psychotic episodes. Hyper-focused, yeah. going into hearing things, seeing things yeah, you can. that didn't really exist. Yeah. And, and mainly those are the most severe cases. Okay. Um, usually, like I said, it's, it's more of this these disordered coping skills. Mm -hmm. So it's really, I mean, people stigmatize it so hard. But personally, I don't see any stigma to it whatsoever because this is a product of your environment, right? I try to really explain that to people. Like, this is good news. You don't have bipolar disorder. You are just damaged from an experience that you've had in your past. And that is much more easily A, identifiable and B, treatable. Mm -hmm. um, dialectical behavioral therapy is a year-long program twice a week you know you do individual oh, is that therapy prescribed yeah yes. and you do group therapy i do group know therapy, that yeah you two hours of group therapy well the one that i refer to sometimes here um two hours of group therapy one hour of individual therapy a week and then you're doing all this homework in between uh okay. worksheets and kind of uh centering projects that you can you know practice on your own um and uh and after a year and, and one of the main things is trying to stay out of the hospital, too. That was kind of one of the mainstays of it because being hospitalized is very disruptive to mm -hmm. uh, the treatment, kind of breaks mm -hmm. it up a bit. Mm -hmm. So should somebody go to any doctor to sort of get diagnosed with it, or should they seek out someone who specializes? Because I think that's what they're asking us. Do, we, do I just immediately seek out a person specializing in BPD or should I start with a generalist and see what they say and then go to a specialist? Mm -hmm. I would say start with the generalist because self-diagnosing in this can be yeah. sort of sticky territory. Totally. You're right. But uh, like I was saying, it's often missed and misperceived. And, you know, some clinicians don't even tell their patients they have borderline. And, you know, it's very stigmatized behind the I don't the tell scenes. patients. See? I don't. That's because why? Why? It's a catch-all umbrella title that we give to somebody that shows a collection of specific symptoms. If I, get, if I say, hey, <laughs> you're BPD, they're like, oh, I suck. There's no hope for me. That's uh. not true. And I don't want to have to overcome that obstacle of the label. Right. Because clients are larger than their label. Oh, yeah. I could see that. Right? It's, yeah, probably a And often through treatment, they progress to the point where they don't actually meet the benchmarks that the DSM sets out anymore. So they don't qualify for that diagnosis. So why do we need to go through the whole mindfuck of being called BPD? Yeah. When you're working your way out of it anyhow. Interesting. I, I have a different approach. You do? You tell yeah, people? Just, yeah, straight of course. Up. Straight up. 
hey, here's the, here's the diagnostic classification. Let's go through it together. A, B, C, D, E, F. And they're like, when oh, they're my gosh, When they're done with you, they come to me. me. Okay? When they're done with you, <laughs> like, they come to me. That's me, and that explains everything that I've been going through. Oh, my gosh. And there's a real relief there that I've, I've found a lot of the time. Like, wow. oh, my goodness. Wait, I'm not just messed up. There's Like, this is a real thing? See, That's I don't so give it a title necessarily, but yeah. I'll equate, like, oh, my goodness, that must have been, like, you acknowledge the childhood trauma. You acknowledge all the trauma that contributes to this without actually just naming it. Uh-huh. That's all. So they're they're getting the validation without the title. And that's what some of my colleagues may be doing as well because it is a stigmatized, uh, uh, very unfortunately, and I think, uh, I mean, un, unrightfully stigmatized diagnosis that is complicated to treat, you know, at times, and it can be very, you know, difficult for the patient uh, to go through these experiences connected with this diagnosis, but really, I mean, in the end, it's probably one of the more treatable conditions. That's interesting because for so long it was considered what we now call access to, which we mm-hmm. don't use that term anymore, which means it's a personality thing, which just means to you are. Yeah. Like we can't, there's no medicine that's going to make this go away. So that's interesting. I do use some medicines in it though, mood mm-hmm. stabilizers mainly atypical mm-hmm. antipsychotics that can really help mm-hmm. uh just just to take tolerate the edge off. yeah take to- that yeah. edge off because there's so much trauma being brought up in the treatment and so much distress tolerance that's required that uh, that sometimes it can really help just kind of recenter things while you're going through all that when i often hear of the trauma that people endure i'm amazed that they came out of it with just simply the symptoms of bpd mm. Like, as opposed to things being much, much worse. As opposed to things just being absolutely, like, even worse for them. Yeah. Because people endure things that, like, your mind can't even imagine, mm-hmm. you know. And yet here they are, reasonably functionable, functioning relationships, you know, like, they they have all the symptoms of it, but they're still getting through day-to-day life, just not to the quality that they want to be. And it just, it's amazing to me. Yeah. It really is. So. Resilience. Mm-hmm. Humans are resilient. Mm-hmm. All right, Jesse, huh. last question of the episode. Dear Sigmund, what are some emotional experiences someone should expect when making a big move alone? I'm moving to a different city away from some of my closest friends and family, and I expect to have some feelings of loneliness and distress. And what would be some healthy coping mechanisms to deal with these feelings? Did you, someone in your family write this? Was this you, Shane? I wrote it. Did you write it? I wrote it. I'm going to just let you take this because, honestly, your personal experience and uh, and therapeutic experience, I think, will be the most robust. Right. Well, I mean, as someone who moves every two to three years and my population that I treat on a day-to-day basis moves every so often, you know, because I treat American expatriates, I would say you're absolutely right. You are going to experience distress and loneliness. Um totally normal right so if you think about it let's look at it and visualize it in terms of a graph you're trucking along in your life at location x right you've got all your systems in place your professional systems your support systems your family your friends all of that sort of stuff um and then you walk away from it all right so the line is up pretty high and then it just sort of drops off there's going to be a trough in there that we can say it's loneliness and distressful until you get those systems back in place, right? And that's going to take time and it's going to take effort. And there are some studies like 
I think people actually quantify this. It takes two years to actually integrate into your new community. So be patient and gentle with yourself that that lull in there between the systems that you were using in the first location and going to the second location, there's going to be a gap. There's going to be time that you're building, you know, that you don't have anything to do on Friday night or there's no one necessarily to call to go do anything with. Is that a statement as to who you are and your character? Absolutely not. It's a statement to being new to a community. I also want to point out that it's really important to remember that like establishing friendships and networks takes effort and energy. It just doesn't fall into your lap. So make that phone call, make that text, go above and beyond. Things just don't fall into place. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say, yeah. And science tells us it takes two, if not three years to fully integrate into your new community. That's a, that's a great answer. You know, and technology is really progressing in this era. I think that um, COVID has pushed forward this use of technology in terms of uh, video conferencing and, you know, FaceTime, Zoom, all of these things that can make us feel a bit closer despite distance. Uh, and I would say utilize those things as much as possible. Something that I've learned during, you know, this COVID time. But that's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Because you can revel in the past and not be where you are in the moment and put your energies Mm. towards building the new networks, right? Mm. So like one time when I was in, you know, whatever country it is, it's like no one cares. You're now in this place or this new town. So like back where I come from, this is what we did. People will entertain that a little bit, but you also need to be very present in where you are. Yeah, that is interesting. Maybe connection is, that's really interesting, a double-edged sword. That it kind of maintains those previous connections maybe too easily. It's very too accessible. Right, right. And it can drag out things that we would like call homesickness and stuff like that. Why? Because if I'm feeling the least bit of something... I pick up my phone and I can text or call somebody and boom, they're right there mm-hmm. and I get gratified. Whereas, you know, back in the day, in the early 90s, you know, when- You were alive uh, back then? Not only was I alive, <laughs> I was going to college. <laughs> but you didn't have that instant gratification. Like, you had to go out and do something about it. Yeah. You couldn't just call somebody and feel better. Call somebody from- the location other than where you are. You had to make do with what was around you. Uh-huh. I'm just thinking about even like relationships or breakups or uh, family members that you're on the outs with. Technology kind of is always, well, Facebook will send you a bunch of, hey, remember your neighbor? Oh, hey, remember your ex-boyfriend? They just posted some pictures. Look what they just posted. You know, you're always getting these drops in your mailbox or these updates on your phone to, oh, hey, why don't you look at what this person's up to? And it's kind of pushing these things that you maybe want to put to the past. Mm-hmm. It makes it very accessible. You can stalk all these people. You can see what your ex high school friends that you hated and your arch nemesis is up to. And now they have a boat and I hate them. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Or you can be like, oh, her skinny ass isn't skinny anymore. 
You know women are, if there is a woman or one listener, I think we now have two listeners. Two listeners. She knows what I'm saying. <laughs> she knows exactly what I'm saying. And the one male guy's like, yeah, I hate that guy who got the boat. Exactly. <laughs> he didn't exactly. deserve a boat. Exactly. But social media and, and that instant access that is in our phone mm-hmm. can be a double-edged sword. It can yeah. keep you from integrating and really forcing you to put the effort into the here and now mm-hmm. while dragging you back to what was. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So just be mindful of that when you're doing it. Am I avoiding integrating here because I'm way comfortable there and I can access there through my phone? Right. Really interesting. Good answer. Hmm. And good question. Thank you, listener. Yeah. All right. I think that wraps it up for episode whatever we're on, six, maybe? Ish. Yeah, whatever. Thanks for listening to Dear Sigmund. If you have a question and don't really want to have a relationship with a therapist or psychiatrist, but just something you really want to know about, um, visit us at DearSigmund.com. Feel free to leave us a voice message, which we would really love because Mm -hmm. people want to hear something more than our voices. Um, or send us an email. Ask your question. We're happy to answer it. Um, Yeah, I think that's all we have to say. Great. Is that it? Yeah, I think so. Thanks for listening. All right, cool.